welcome to my faculty podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. With me today are Nina McCune and Leilani Jelstead. I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves and tell us all about you. Nina? Hi. Uh, I am the new Associate Dean for Inclusive Teaching and Learning Environments, and I am so excited to join Walden and learn how I can best help develop inclusive teaching and learning environments. Awesome. Leilani? Yes, thank you, Nina. Um, My name is Leilani, and I am the Chair of the University's Institutional Review Board, and I've been in that role for about 16 years, and I've been at Walden for 18 years, and I also teach in the School of Psychology and uh, serve as uh, one of the uh, directors within the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. So we thought today that we would talk a little bit about that interconnection between research and diversity. So let me start with encouraging research that is specific to marginalized and underserved groups because recruitment can be challenging when anyone is excluded, even if the study's intention is to focus on one group. Anybody want to try to talk about that? Sure. This is something that both students and their supervising faculty members really struggle with, and we all learn a lot as we confront that that sort of um, rubber-hits-the-road type of challenge because I think a lot of us have had moments when we, in our lit reviews, when we're, when we're reading and consuming published research articles, that we find some, a gem of an article that really brought home an important message by focusing on one particular group, whether it's an ethnic group, a racial group, or a certain socioeconomic status, or a certain subculture. And so we know that as consumers of research that that's very valuable. And yet, one of our challenges when we're on the researcher side is that if you're going to focus on one group, that means you're excluding others, which presents a bit of an ethical dilemma. Because um, one of the things that we as a society have learned kind of the hard way through especially the past, um, I'd say five or six, maybe even seven decades of medical research is that there was a time when they wanted to say study a disease and they would only recruit um, essentially white men or European men. Um, like and this was, I believe the case with heart disease. And so, you know, they did not include anyone. They didn't include women. They didn't include people of other um, ethnicities and because they wanted to control for variables like genetics, which is clearly related to heart disease. So it, it wasn't out of sheer, um, ignorance or racism, they, they have their reasons, if you will, for wanting to control for the variables of genetics. But then the downside is, is that we didn't learn about how heart disease progresses and, and can be treated in other groups. And so I feel like in the research ethics circles, there's a lot of awareness about the importance of including people from as many different um, groups and and demographics as possible and and generally the expectation is that you try to recruit 
a sample that is representative of the population at large. Right? So this is all kind of making sense to all of us. And then all of a sudden we're like, well, but wait a minute. It's so useful when you sometimes focus on one subgroup. And so those are just two tensions in the research world that, um, you know, we all have to uh, grapple with and to make sure that whichever path we go as researchers and, you know, those of us who mentor students, that we really articulate what our rationale is. Because to be honest, both paths can be justified. One could make, you know, a very strong argument in their own research that, well, I'm going to go for a representative sample, and that means it's not going to have a clear focus on one particular group. That's very justifiable because of, you know, like I said, about the, the desire to have a representative sample in order to learn about the population at large. It is also very defensible for a person to say, I want to focus on just this one group. But then here's where we have the um, sort of the caveat. If you're going to focus on just one group, it's your responsibility, it's your ethical obligation to clearly explain why you're not including everyone else, because it would be um, insensitive and, and inappropriate and unethical and all of those things to just say, I only care about this one group, right? You, you um, can't just, and this is a conversation I know I've had with many students in residencies where we kind of have to strip it down. And in, for example, sometimes a student walks in the door at, at a residency, let's say, and we're you know, having a discussion about their dissertation research and they're very excited and they know walking the door, you know, I want to focus on low-income Latinas and this particular issue, or I want to focus on it, well, any fill-in, fill-in-the-blank, whatever, a very kind of a narrow demographic group. And that's maybe their passion because of um, problems they've noticed in their professional work or in their community. And yet we have to take a bit of a step back and ask the student a very challenging question is, which is, okay, so you've, you're telling me about a research problem that you, you've observed within this, that impacts this particular group. Does this problem also impact everyone else who's not in that group? Because if that's the case, the chances are that you may be ethically obligated to go the path of including everyone. Because if the, the research problem um, so like, let's say the problem is heart disease. Does that impact everyone? Okay, let's just say for the time being, I'm not a medical expert, let's say for the time being, the answer is yes, then it's your ethical obligation to include everyone. However, if you have some hard data, or even if you have a theory, you have, um, yeah, it could be empirical or theoretical rationale for saying, I can point to why heart disease impacts African-American women more than other groups, then you have a reason, an, an, an ethical um, rationale for focusing just on African-American women. And it's not about you just caring about them more, which I know I'm being a little facetious when I say that, but just because they're your passion group, but you, ha you have to have that empirical or theoretical basis for focusing on a group. And then you move forward. And then you, you've got, and this is all really in the early phases of designing a study, um, especially if we're talking about doctoral students, this would be in their prospectus phase, you know, when they're just outlining their research problems and they're defending why is this a, a, a problem in the world worthy of study. And yet, 
I think that it's it, like I said, it's it's not everyone is experienced in articulating that rationale. So I think that Walden or Walden in general has a lot of um, a lot of diversity in its researchers and in its research populations. So there's some unique opportunities to become really good at articulating those those types of rationales and for highlighting them as a strength um, that not every institution has um, that level of diversity. And the other thing, um, actually, why don't I just stop for a minute, let Naima comment, and then I'll kind of circle back in a moment to the, the pragmatic challenge of, of finding and recruiting um, for narrow subgroups. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, there's so much to explore with this. And especially for those who are just preparing um, to do their dissertation research, uh, if you are intending on having some kind of exclusionary criteria, um, you know, you have to be very, very careful then on how you set up your assumptions and how you present your limitations. Um, you know, the credibility of any study rests on the data that you use. And not only do you have to, I think, do more than adequate research to justify why you might want to focus on one subgroup versus another, you have to be really prepared to explore then kind of the depth and breadth of how that limits you and what assumptions you're bringing in. Um, and, you know, if, if that's not carefully done, uh, you know, I think that goes back to the original question, right? Can we ethically um, support then looking only at one subgroup or do we have to broaden the pool? So that's, um, you know, that's something to, to consider, um, especially since we do live in an age that we have to be very, very cautious of confirmation bias. Um, I think oftentimes we find that one jewel right? That one awesome study that's done that we are so influenced by, and maybe it is the researcher's goal to replicate the studies or deny the studies, you know, the findings, um, whatever that, whatever inclination you might have. But um, that is in and of itself a little, a little problematic, right? To, to chase after a similar research pool uh, based on a study that you're really enamored with, it, it creates its own set of ethical problems, I think, within the research. And so, Leilani, I'll turn it back to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, so let's say a student has, um, I, I'm so glad you brought up the, the limitations and, and how you frame your assumptions, because let's assume the student has done um, all their homework in really thinking hard about all the assumptions and finding that either theoretical or empirical support for focusing on one group and you know they they get their defense uh, proposal defended and everything and they start thinking um, very pragmatically like okay <laughs> it's time to start recruiting participants this also is another layer of challenge in finding people who belong to that subgroup and then even within the subgroup you don't want to have uh, underserved or marginalized populations for example a lot of um, researchers now recruit through recruit online whether it's through social media or email and there we know there are pockets of of communities everywhere that don't use still don't use the internet as much and so the researcher needs to give a lot of thought to okay if I recruit with social media 
sure that might need to get me the number of participants I need for my study, but is this a, uh, a biased sample or a um, skewed sample? Because it just might happen to be the more high income or the more, uh, you know, if you're thinking about different ages and, and use of comfort with um, the internet accessibility, you possibly, you know, could not be reflecting, um, you could be leaving out important perspectives from important segments. So there's, you know, there's these different layers of um, thinking very mindfully about recruitment and how that's going to impact your findings if your recruitment method is skewed in some way. And then one thing that I feel people often um, assume it's going to be easy and then when it gets right down to it, I know I've even found it difficult myself to articulate once you get ready to write that flyer or write that email invitation and you think, well, what do I call it? Do I say, you know, African-American women and, you know, just say the age range, that should be clear enough, right? Um, an important element is thinking about how the words you're using in addition to where people are seeing them. So if they're seeing something on social media, you have to really be thinking about the fact that if someone is scrolling through and maybe they're not expecting something to be targeted right at them. Um, or, uh, for example, one thing that gets even more difficult, social media is the easy one, actually. So I, that's not the best example. In social media, unfortunately, we're used to seeing ads targeted to us because that's happening more and more, right? Um, but let's say you're in uh, your workplace and your workplace is, um, you see a recruitment ad of some sort of, let's say it's a flyer, and it might be the case, or, or if it's disseminated, you know, like through email, it can be, it could sometimes be off-putting, or it could even just be a little confusing. Um, I have to admit, I saw a, an ad that a student wrote, and in one part of the ad, I believe she, she, the student used the term um, Asian American women, and another part of the ad used Asian Pacific Islander. And I thought, okay, you know, all of a sudden, I'm not sure if I qualify for the study anymore. You know, because the language you use um, can, it, it needs to be very thoughtfully defined because I have to admit, the acronym that was being used here, I'd never seen it used in that, in that way. And um, I had to Google it to see what exactly, the one that involved the Pacific Islander, I had to I Google it to see what it meant specifically. And um, when you're recruiting, the best way is to let people self-identify by um, the language. And I know Nina has a lot more expertise on this area than I do. Um, in fact, I'm going to be knocking on your door for help with this. Um, whether it's, I, I think the one that confuses people the most, maybe uh, researchers, is gender and sexuality. And, um, you know, I recently saw a proposal where it, it, the researcher was trying to find a way of saying anything but heterosexual. And this list was very, very long. And it, I, I found it confusing, like to, to read as if I were a participant, because the, um, the researcher was interested in hearing experiences from people who are in um, minority sexual orientation groups. And it, if you're not careful, you can end up excluding people on accident or excluding people who, based, because of the way they self-identify, they don't see their identification um, there in the list. Um, like that's kind of how I felt when I saw the, 
I wish I could remember the acronym, but it, it could literally sometimes be confusing to people. They're like, I can't tell whether I did this study or not. And so um, most of the time, I, I think a researcher can work with um, their contact at an organization or um, even just a little bit of trial and error. And they can realize after a period of time, like, well, I'm not only seem to be getting participants in these certain groups and other people maybe are seeing the flyer and just not thinking this applies to them. And um, this can apply to demographics as well as experiences. For example, I saw an ad where I think a student was wanting to talk to veterans with PTSD. And that might sound pretty simple and straightforward, right? But then again, I think we had a, had a dialogue with a researcher and I said, well, what if their PTSD is not related to combat? Is that, do you still want those people in your study? And the researcher's reaction was like, oh, no, actually, that's not the group I was thinking. But it's, it's very possible that a veteran could have PTSD. That is not from the combat itself. That's just maybe even not related to the military experience. And so some of these things, even though someone is, is completely immersed in this population, in this topic, in this field, it's not until you actually start interacting with people that you realize it, it can be a little tricky to convey what you mean by those subgroups. And um, and there's no perfect solution, of course, except to try to vet your recruitment ideas with as many people as possible, and maybe just ask a few people. If you saw this flyer, would you, you know, would you respond to it? Would you perceive that you fit into that? You know, just to throw in another little wrench in there. You know, a common issue that you have when you're trying to find a particular racial group is people who have multiple identities. So Absolutely. they may identify as Black and Native American or Black and Asian. And, you know, do I fit this requirement or not? And I think that's also a common issue that people have. I've actually had um, people tell me that when they've had to identify their race uh, and they fit the category that you just described, Lee, that they get incredibly stressed out and they don't know what to choose. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I had one one participant just tell me flatly, am I going to I mean, I'm going to disown my mom or am I going to disown my dad? <laughs> and it, it, right? so it can be really confusing. And, you know, there's there's such limitations as we understand um, these racialized categories uh, that there are researchers who think the way that we racially disaggregate um, is is relatively meaningless, um, you know, unless we tie it to other factors of socioeconomic status um, or geographical location or, um, you know, something else that could be indicative of uh, pockets of certain kinds of, of, of individuals. Um, I lived and researched in Louisiana. Uh, and right there off the bat, <laughs> when you think of the population in Louisiana and the heritage of so many of, of the people who live there, um, none of the categories are clean. <laughs> uh, so it's um, it's 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 a very it's a very difficult uh, it's a very difficult area. Um, or for example, you know, um, and I was mentioning this uh, earlier that a lot of the census categories are set by the Office of Management and Budget from the federal government. And so we might use the term Asian to describe how many groups of people um, it's, it's broad and encompassing and it, it, it can lack the specificity, even though we think it offers some dimension of specificity. Um, but in and of itself, it, it creates these exclusive sub pockets um, that might 
not consider Southeast Asia, uh, for example, um, or Micronesia, or yes. you know, any of these other areas. Um, that the we Philippines is is difficult because sometimes it's Asia and sometimes it's considered Pacific Islands. That's why we exactly. earlier. <laughs> yep. Exactly. I've so been it's, there. <laughs> it, it does create a lot of confusion. And I guess, you know, it wasn't really until I started doing specific higher education research that I got to understand the depth of the pushback on just on that question alone, um, that it's hyper exclusive. You know, we know we know the census and census categories and all of all of those issues are not perfect. Um, but then what does the researcher have? Right. If we have a standard language that's kind of set from top down, especially if we do a study that has some kind of federal funding, we have to be very, very conscious of that. Um, but then what do you do when you fall into these traps? It's, it's a it's a hard call. So I'm so glad you brought up the federal um, categories, because though it isn't perfect, that has been sort of the best practice out there for researchers. Um, if you're going to ask people, your participants, to describe their race and ethnicity, that for the purpose of comparing your sample to the general population in, let's say, Louisiana or wherever the study is happening, then you really have to ask the race and ethnicity questions similarly, if not identically, to how they're presented in the census. And in, I believe it was in, was it 2000? Census was the first time people could check multiple categories on the census. Does that yeah. sound right, Nina? Yep, that's right. And before right. that, before that, I and many other people had to choose one or the other because we're only allowed to pick one. And it's sort of like, do I disown my mother or do I disown my father? And uh, yeah, very loaded, very, like you said, emotionally stressful and um, lot, yeah. And so thankfully they, um, in 2000, and then of course since then in 2010 and 2020, allowed people to, uh, I believe select as many categories as apply. So it's not just picking two, you could pick all that apply. And yes, it makes analysis and making charts much more difficult because now there are hundreds of possible combinations, if not thousands. And, <laughs> but that difficulty is part of, sorry, sorry, it's not neat and orderly. That's just not how the world is, right? We just have to accept that that is, um, uh, there, there's some studies I've seen where they try to uh, force some order, orderliness, if you will, into the analysis by still using categories like white, black, and other. It's still not so long ago I, I, I saw an analysis and I, I could understand why statistically that just felt like, well, we can do something meaningful, meaningful, but then you obviously have to address those limitations of that, of that mean, that method of interpreting um, racial data. So what do you recommend for students? What's the best way to handle that? I would say to think incredibly carefully as to why you want to target a research of one specific racial or ethnic population or subgroup thereof um, and find, you know, this kind of, it's a, it's a vicious circle. Go back to as much literature as you can find that, that you know is credible, that has um, had the same measures and understand what, how they presented their limitations and how they presented their assumptions. Um, but as you delve 
into your categories, be super specific. Um, and when you have your research participants, especially in qualitative studies, you know, quantitative, there are some other issues that can statistically be dealt with. But I have um, had qualitative interviews where um, people have, you know, said, why do you only want to speak to Creole speakers? You know, what, what, what do you think about Creole speakers that, that makes you ask these questions? Um, and it's almost as if you are inviting um, a kind of a caustic stereotype threat into the research, which, you know, then, but, so you have to be incredibly careful as to how you phrase it. And I don't know how helpful that is, um, but think once, think twice, read some more, uh, sketch it out again and again, and just make sure that, that this, yes, this is exactly how you want to conduct your research. I think that's great advice. And I would also add, once you get to the point of designing your data collection tool, don't make your own um, demographic questionnaire. There's no reason to do that. There are people who've made entire careers of working, hashing out the challenges of asking people the demographics, including asking people about their profession and their income level. Like, they're, they're, believe it or not, there is a wrong way to do that. <laughs> there are ways to ask people about those things where you get not very meaningful data. I've seen it. And then you can't help a student make a good analysis out of data that has well, that didn't ask the questions in a way that was meaningful. Um, it's usually better to be more specific than more general. So um, it's just to give an example, if you're going to ask people about their age, that's a touchy one. You know, if you're going to ask people their age, maybe because you want to understand um, like maybe it's not an independent variable in the study, but you just want to either maybe understand as a covariate or just as a descriptive part of the sample. You know, maybe you want just want to know um, how representative your sample is. Um, asking them to check where they fall within, say, the 30 to 39, 40 to 49, that's a terrible way to ask for age demographics because then you're extremely limited in what you how you can interpret that data. And even if you ask them, tell me your birthday, or tell me how old you are, that's okay. But it's even better just to ask them when their birth date is and then um, calculate their exact age, especially for kids, because I think we all know there's a big difference, or there can be major differences between um, a four-year and 11-month-old and uh, a four-year-old, for example. And so... D yeah, don't create your own measure, your own demographic questionnaire. It, you might think it's simple, but it's actually very, very difficult. So go with best practices in your field. Um, talk to mentors and ask if you can um, look at their look at published articles first of all, and see how demographics are reported. Bear in mind that often in the way they're reported, they may have been asked differently. So just like I said, sometimes when we report the sample, we do may maybe do give age ranges or. Um, um, uh, when you report your aggregate data, um, but the uh, the question itself usually needs to be pretty specific. And then, just like Nina mentioned before, when it comes to race and ethnicity, even though it has some limitations, the Office of Management Budget, the the race and ethnicity categories we see in the census, are at least going to allow you to extrapolate within the U.S. to how your sample. Um, compares to the U.S. general population. Now, it gets really interesting when students are collecting data outside the U.S. 
where the U.S. census categories are, I would say, irrelevant, but certainly not not that helpful. So um, in, in some of those cases, we've guided researchers to um, really try to find out, you know, in, in some areas there are just there's important cultural information or and ethnicity information in terms of um, the dialects or the combination of dialects um, that the individual speaks. And so it's it's really important not to just decide on your own how you want to do it, but to look to samples of researchers who came before you. And if you are one of the first researchers, we've had some students in the situation, if you are one of the first researchers in an area where there has not been a lot of academic research, then by all means consult with some um, local local experts and um, usually you can find people especially since a lot of research tends to originate in the medical it's often that maybe there's not a lot of social science research in an area but there is some precedent of medical research to get at least have a starting place for seeing what were they using for demographic um, categories well we are just about out of time so how about final comments nina I hope none of this dissuades anybody <laughs> from being, uh, you know, really specific and and looking at specific group behavior. I, I think the big take-home message is uh, just be careful and be thoughtful, be respectful of um, what you're asking to find from these groups. Um, you know, we can so we can think about IRB um, uh, standards and you know think about the do no harm clause um, and do no harm practice. But how often do we really think about that when we're just saying, oh, it's just demographics, right? I just, you know, just want to get just like the background. What I'm really interested in is my topic, right? And I want to get to these questions. But I think if you treat the demographic section just as carefully as you do as the topic, the content of what you're researching, um, you will put yourself in a much better position. Leilani? Yes, that's great advice. With just as much sensitivity and attention to as their main topic, I would totally agree with that. And when it comes to the analysis, again, just as much. Um, it's not that we're most of us, most researchers are not looking for demographics to be the explanatory variable in um, you know understanding these phenomena and these um, social science types of um, topics. But it's a really critical contextual variable, and um, you know, you, and I know talked earlier about the bias. I don't think we ever. It's it's always a good idea to scan your data set before you even start doing your uh, in quantitative examples before you start doing your inferential analyses to really get to know your data set and to look at um, some some tables and charts and just understand and if so that you could know if there were any a fluky pattern potentially or if you maybe need to if you have some uh, groups that are underrepresented you might need to do another round of recruitment and especially with quantitative studies most of the time your goal is to get as close as you can so that your sample is representative of the population and that's um, it's really difficult that's a whole other podcast I think Lee about how to try to um, <laughs> when when you have some underrepresentation, how do you try to uh, encourage those uh, voices and to be heard and people to be counted, even if there may be good reasons from their point of view why they're not volunteering for these studies. So um, yeah, we'll do that in another podcast, I think. <laughs> I think we will. I think it's a great question.
Well, thank you both so very much. And if someone has a question about this, who would be a good person for them to talk to? I'd say both of us. Just reach out and Absolutely. be very Absolutely. welcome. So Leilani would be at IRB at Mail. Oh, yes. I can give. Yes, IRB at mail.waldenu.edu or my personal account. Either is fine. I know my name is really hard to spell, though. Yeah, I think IRB is safer. It's easier to do. Yeah. <laughs> I think my name is How equally as hard to spell, though. So. <laughs> but I only have the one email address, and it's nina, N I N A, dot McCune at mail.waldenu.edu. Well, thank you both so very much to talk to us today. And I think we're going to have to do another podcast or two about all these great topics. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com. And I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services.